from the historic campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, where the good, the true, and the beautiful are taught, nurtured, and honored, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. He's also very famous for pointing out that there's a internal tension in democracy. It's the two principles that make up democracy on the one hand is equality and on the other hand freedom and he believed that they would always be in tension and his biggest fear was that the fate of freedom in an age of egalitarianism would be rather bleak this is your host scott bertram and that's dr khalil habib associate professor of politics and allison and dorothy rouse professor in politics at hillsdale college and today we talk in depth with dr habib about alexis de tocqueville his life, his work, his thoughts on America. Dr. Habib, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy our conversations. We take a deep dive today into democracy in America and Tocqueville. Who was Alexis de Tocqueville? Why did he come over here to America? Well, Alexis de Tocqueville was the Catholic French diplomat. He was born in 1805. Unfortunately, lived a very short life. He died in 1859. And he was commissioned to come to the United States to ostensibly study our prison system, and uh, which he did do. And he did write a book, a very short book on the prison system. But he was struck immediately by the, the democratic experiment in the United States. And so he ended up writing this massive two-volume work on what's called Democracy in America. The first volume came out in 1831, and then the second in 1832, sorry, 1835, and then 1856, rather. And uh, and it's been a classic ever since. Somehow prisons in America doesn't have the same ring to it as uh, democracy in America does. <laughs> uh, right, exa- exactly. Uh, but I should say one other thing about him, though, that makes him quite unique. He was a, a practicing politician. He was the former minister for Europe and foreign affairs of France, and he was an aristocrat doesn't necessarily mean he sided with the aristocracy. In fact, he's got some criticisms of them and he does praise democracy. Mm-hmm. But your listeners should know that he's unique in, in one very important regard. Around the time Tocqueville's writing, you had a lot of philosophers who were essentially professors, which usually means their philosophy tends to be a little bit abstract and mm-hmm. academic. The advantage that Tocqueville has, uh, having his feet firmly planted in politics, is democracy in America is very lucid, very clear. It doesn't have any jargon or abstraction. It can be essentially read by any any educated person, whereas you know one would have to struggle, you know, even with a PhD in philosophy to understand, say, someone like Immanuel Kant or Hegel. And so that is an important feature, I think, of his of his character. How much time did Tocqueville end up spending in America and where did he go? What did he see in our country? Well, this is the part that's a bit humbling. <laughs> he was only 26 years old mm-hmm. when he wrote Democracy in America, and he was in the United States for 10 months only, which is remarkable. And that's the those are the years of 1831 to 1832. Uh, what's really interesting about where he went is he first lands in Newport, Rhode Island, and he makes this remarkable journey. Uh, and he makes it as far as Ohio and Michigan, actually. And so there is a, if, you, if your listeners go online, and just simply type in, you know, Tocqueville's journey in America. There are several organizations that actually retrace his steps mm-hmm. and even offer tours of where he went to the United States. But it was essentially New England, and then he made his way out to the Midwest. What was happening here in America around the time that Tocqueville was observing and then and then writing about his experiences? 
So when Tocqueville arrives, he arrives during Andrew Jackson's presidency, and the West was still being settled, and there was an expansion westward. One of the, the chief points that he thinks is happening in America that's really unique to America is he notes to his French audience that the Puritans in New England were establishing centers of political participation, local participation. And he said it was the first time in Western history that you had two things coming together that had been diametrically opposed, especially in France, and that is Christianity and liberty. And that was the, the most distinctive feature of what was happening at the time. The other, the other feature, which is sad, and it's one of the tragic moments in American history, is that there was slavery being practiced mm -hmm. in the southern states. And it was a kind of slavery that Tocqueville said was the worst. No slavery can ever be justified. But the American southerners, he said, practiced it on the basis of race, as opposed to, say, you know, ancient forms of slavery, where it was just the victor got the spoils and you became a slave. And it was never based on race or any notion of racial superiority. And so he thought that that marked a very unique point in American history. But he also recognized, thankfully, that the practice of slavery in the United States was against the very principles of the American founding. And so he actually predicted the Civil War and predicted that the South would lose because they were just simply uh, too foreign. Their principles were completely at odds with the American founding. And so that, that, those were, the, the I would say, the, the, the features that were really unique at the time of his travels in the United States. How, how accurate was his observations and his interpretations of what he saw? Can we consider Tocqueville a faithful narrator of his time? He's pretty remarkable. I mean, I think one of the, the reasons why this book has become such a classic, and it is studied in a variety of different departments, is because of its accuracy. A lot of it is sociological. Uh, he's always interested in how the social conditions in the United States shape the mores, a French word that he uses for moral character or morals and sentiments in the United States. I want your listeners, though, to be aware that there is some controversy about whether or not he was completely accurate. One of the things that some of his critics point out, and critics on the right, by the way, not just simply on the left, mm -hmm. is that he doesn't make any real serious mention of the Declaration of Independence. And so the argument goes that um, how accurate can it be if one of the most distinctive features of the United States, the Declaration of Independence and its relationship to the Constitution, isn't even mentioned hmm. by Tocqueville. Now, to, to be fair to him, I think often we forget that the book was actually never written for Americans. It right. was written for a French audience and an audience that had experimented with revolution, but did so in a very abstract way that led to a terrible French Revolution that resulted in nothing but despotism. So I think he was a little bit wary of, I think, bringing up um, our notions of, of natural rights. He does believe in rights, but I think he kind of leaves them in the background because I think his intended audience is the French. And he wanted him to focus far more on how Christianity and liberty work together in the United States as opposed to being in tension and in violent odds as they were in France. What did Tocqueville himself think about democracy? Was he in line with the way that our founders would have been thinking about democracy? He often associates uh, the Federalist Party. There was a Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Party in the United States, and he often associates the Federalist, who he describes as America's great genius as a statesman. And so to that extent, I think he lines pretty well with the American founders' vision 
of what our regime is, is essentially established to promote. His view on democracy is kind of complicated because, as I said in the outro, at the, at the, at the intro of, your, of, of our radio show, he was an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that doesn't mean he blindly followed aristocracy. He did think democracy had merits. Um, he does believe, for example, that that, that your, your merit should confer your, your faith and your future and not your birth. And an aristocracy, as you well know, uh, you're often born into certain privileges. But what he noticed in America that he thought was excellent and wanted to praise was that we had these equality of conditions, meaning that people could, through their own will and their own strength and intelligence, be upwardly mobile and enter into politics and participate and contribute. On the other hand, he's also very famous for pointing out that there's a internal tension in democracy. It's the, the two principles that make up democracy on the one hand is equality and on the other hand, freedom. And he believed that they would always be in tension. And his biggest fear was that the fate of freedom in an age of egalitarianism would be rather bleak. And so he writes the book, as he tells us in his introduction, as a friendly critic of democracy. He's all in favor mm-hmm. of the principles of equality and freedom, but he wants his readers to be aware that equality taken to an extreme can actually trample on, on liberty and freedom, especially the freedom of the mind. Talking with Dr. Khalil Habib about Tocqueville and democracy in America, his work. Tocqueville's writing a couple of decades before the Civil War, and you alluded to his uh, his prediction earlier. What did he write at the time uh, on the debate surrounding the unity of America, meaning uh, uh, we sometimes refer to this as the United States is or the United States are, and also also slavery? Tocqueville was, was a, a real critic of slavery of all kinds, but especially the kind practiced in the United States. Uh, he calls it uh, t- totally barbaric. He wants to remind his readers not only of slavery, but also the way in which the early Americans had treated the Native Americans as well. And so toward the very end of the first part, there's a bit of a tragic tone. He seems to want the readers to never forget, one, the Puritans in America, how their austerity produced a certain kind of freedom in their soul that made self-government possible. But he also wanted to remind his readers also of the fate of the Native Americans and also the way in which slavery was practiced. At the time, he felt that the country was, in fact, divided. It couldn't really coexist with two diametrically opposed principles of politics. On the one hand, in the North, there was a sense of genuine equality, Hmm. not to be mistaken for egalitarianism, but a real sense that men are born free and equal to others and that there's no justification for coercing another person or bringing them under your authority. And on the other hand, with the way in which the Southern slave practicing states practiced uh, slavery was diametrically opposed. And sadly, uh, he was right. Uh, such a difference was was bound to lead to a civil war, which he predicted. And thankfully, the non-slave states won and we've abolished slavery as a result. Now, we've actually talked about this previously on the show a little bit, but since we're talking about Tocqueville and democracy in America, specifically Tocqueville's writing and thoughts on the importance of the freedom of the press and freedom of speech. How do they come through in democracy in America? Yeah, that's one of my favorite themes, actually, in the book. And what's interesting is, although the book is massive, several you know, hundred pages, the only topic, to the best of my knowledge, that he devotes two entire chapters to are the freedom of the press. And in order to understand why he was such a 
freedom of the press absolutist. He wanted zero, and I mean zero, censorship of any kind, is because he saw that the freedom of the press, which is essentially the First Amendment in the mm-hmm. United States, mm-hmm. was part and parcel of uh, part of the American tradition of forming associations in which human beings can debate, no matter how nasty things get, the course of their own lives. And that, to him, was the distinguishing feature of what it means to live in a republic. In a Republican form of government, human beings have to take ownership and responsibility for their lives and the laws that they pass because they they have to obey the laws and it's better to obey laws that you had a hand in shaping. His fear with any kind of censorship and why he thought the freedom of the press was crucial was he didn't want massive public opinion to erode the individual desires and arguments that we make for how we want to live in our local uh, areas. And so the reason why he wanted a freedom of the press is he wanted to decentralize public opinion as much as possible. He warned against media being dominated by one or two corporate entities. Mm -hmm. He thought that that would be too powerful and would end up shaping public opinion. And the people behind it would essentially be ruling elites. If you decentralize, the only way to decentralize public opinion is if you proliferate freedom of the press, have as many newspapers. And today, I think he would say as many social media outlets as possible with zero censorship. And that way, every public opinion can be challenged and scrutinized. And he felt that the the fate, actually his phrase, not mine, the fate of democracy in a republic rests on its freedom of the press. So that's a very high praise for what he saw in America as a very healthy. Dr. Habib Tofu comes, he sees, he observes, he writes, in the end, why does he think that Republican representative democracy succeeds in the U.S. when it has failed in so many other places? What is the difference? A number of things. The point of comparison for Tocqueville is always the French Revolution, which is from 1789 to 1790. And of course, that's where Tocqueville is from. And there was an experiment to establish some kind of, of regime founded on reason and quality and freedom, but it was a complete disaster. Part of the reason why he believed that the experiment in liberty failed in France and failed to take root, but managed to succeed remarkably well in the United States is twofold. On the one hand, he believed that the French did not have the experience in self-government. Once Louis XIV started to centralize authority, people no longer were able to govern their own lives. So you had the centralized government, you had a bureaucratic state that was essentially calling all the shots. And so the revolutionaries, he said, became abstract and violent because they lacked any kind of political common sense. Why? Because they had no experience in governing their affairs anymore. So they were all armchair quarterbacks and Mm -hmm. so had lost contact with reality. In the United States, by contrast, he says two things made America succeed. One, the American colonists had developed, he says, a, a, a habit of freedom partly because of their Christianity, because of the austerity of their moral commitments, they were able to govern their own passions and desires. So the first experience in self-rule came by way of moral and religious righteousness. That trickles out into the public space where then human beings can be trusted to govern their own lives because they live according to moral scruples. The other factor is he believes that the habits of self-government predate Tudor England. And that many of the colonists, in fact, all of the colonists who had come to New England and settle it, had actually come from centuries of developed practices 
in local self-government. And that is in stark contrast with the French Revolution, where essentially nobody was really governing their own affairs anymore. They were subject to arbitrary decrees that would come from bureaucrats in Versailles that were completely removed from reality and the lived experience of the Frenchmen. Dr. Habib, you already talked about Tocqueville pro projecting and predicting the Civil War and who would win and who would lose. What things does he write about that he gets right? Other things he gets right? Does he get anything wrong about what he saw as the future of the United States? I think what he gets right is actually quite haunting. And that is, he believed that America had many fine institutions that could potentially push back uh, against the tyranny of the majority. And he looks, for example, at the freedom of the press. And now one wonders, do we still have that? And he does predict that these things would require vigilance, but they could easily be lost. Mm -hmm. He looks at universities and colleges and says America has quite a few of them. And they can always serve uh, to push back against egalitarianism and public opinion. And then, of course, today you wonder, well, uh, did he accurately predict that those two could potentially be eroded? Mm -hmm. um, so he is aware that we do have institutions, but he's concerned that we would lose them. The one insight that he has that I find a little bit perplexing, and depending on which day you ask me, I would say he either got it right or he got it wrong. And that <laughs> is his psychological analysis of the tyranny of the majority. Uh, you, you can't read uh, democracy in America without being struck by this terrifying vision that it gives of the future where a de democratic majority could essentially trample on the rights of their own citizens. Mm -hmm. And it would have a certain kind of egalitarianism run to such a such an extreme that the, the individual liberties of American citizens would be squashed. Now, the reason why I say I'm somewhat perplexed by this is because as I observe American politics today, I don't know whether or not we are living under a tyranny of the majority or rather a tyranny of ruling elites who mm. manipulate the majority. Mm -hmm. It's a subtle difference. And he doesn't, to the, the best of my knowledge, talk about how maybe a handful of elites can commandeer public opinion by centralizing, say, the media, centralizing, taking over higher education, could then end up using the majority against their own best interests which is to say to erode the individual rights that we have, that the whole purpose of our regime was established to protect. So that's that's the one issue I would say, again, depending on which day you ask me, sometimes I think maybe he got that wrong. Maybe it's not so much a tyranny of the majority as much as a tyranny of the elite. And then there are times when it does appear perhaps he was right and it is a tyranny of the majority. So I'll leave it to your listeners <laughs> to, untangle that, to, to untangle that little pretzel. Dr. Khalil Labib talking Tocqueville and democracy in America. I want to ask a two-part question about the book's legacy. What kind of an impact did democracy in America have upon its release at the time? And then why are we still talking about it today? What are the everlasting lessons that perhaps we, we keep looking back at in democracy in America? Yeah, it, it was massively successful. Uh, he had already had a, a, a national reputation in France. The book was sold like hotcakes. Everybody was interested in what was going on in the United States. France had still not really recovered from the consequences of the French Revolution. And then here comes a French diplomat singing the praises of America, which everybody in France really enjoyed looking down upon. Here comes one of their illustrious aristocrats holding it up as an exemplar of democracy in the United States. It remains a classic, I think, because of its comprehensive nature. 
uh, it doesn't just focus on one or two issues in America. It seems to really set the standard for a variety of issues. He talks about liberal education in the United States. He talks about its ge our geography. He talks about our institutions. He praises our legal system. He loves the jury system and how it helps to educate the commoner when he has to serve on jury duty. It's the, the comprehensiveness with which he really tackles democracy in America is really remarkable. And again, he, he also correctly points out that the future doesn't belong to monarchy and it doesn't belong to aristocracy. The future is going to be democratic. The question is, which of those two principles is going to predominate? Is it going to be equality or is it going to be freedom? And is there a way to somehow moderate these two extremes within any democracy and find a way to preserve what is true and what is liberal in classical modern liberalism in a world where democracy and especially egalitarianism seems to be constantly moving in an extreme direction. I think anybody interested in modern sociology or politics has to wrestle with the book and the claims that he makes. Dr. Khalil Habib, Associate Professor of Politics and Allison and Dorothy Rouse Professor in Politics at Hillsdale College, talking about something near and dear to him, Tocqueville and democracy in America. Dr. Habib, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Scott, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Up next, we talk with author Tracy Lee Simmons about his recent book, On Being Civilized. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. Be sure to check out the Hillsdale College Podcast Network for older episodes of this program plus other great Hillsdale audio. It's at podcast.hillsdale.edu. We're joined by Tracy Lee Simmons, a writer and journalist. His latest book is On Being Civilized, A Few Lines Amid the Breakage. You can find that at Amazon or at memoriapress.com. Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. The title of the book, On Being Civilized, I think demands a definition. So let's start there. What would you say it means to be civilized? Well, that's the propitious question of the moment, isn't it? At one time, 
the idea of civilization was simply an honorific. It's what everyone aspired to. It's what everyone considered terrestrial success. Now we're in a generation of people who aren't sure, are not sure, that civilization is a particularly good thing. Uh, so the work I've done in literary journalism has been to try to place the civilized ideal before us all. And I've done this through essays, articles, and principally book reviews, really, trying to forward this conversation about what it means to be civilized. And and what, it, and what does it mean? There are as many definitions as uh, <laughs> there are stars in the sky, I suppose. But um, to be formed, I think, spiritually as, as, as well as politically, to have ideals that transcend the self and to, and to live by them, uh, and of course to live corporately. Civilization suggests the idea of citizen, and citizens live together in a particular way, but that has to start with the individual. So people have to be individually civilized before they can be corporately so. Why is it so important that we talk about this, that we think about being civilized? Why write a book called On Being Civilized? As I said, because we're going through a period when that is not an obvious thing to aspire to anymore. But life has always been better under those societies that were more civilized than others when all of the cylinders were firing uh, educationally, materially, economically, artistically, religiously, socially, all of those things that need to be addressed in some way in each uh, civilized epoch. And of course, ideals of what constitutes civilization are going to uh, differ from, from one period to another, perhaps, but there are, there are going to be there's going to be lots of overlap. We consider the way we treat one another to be sort of the benchmark of civilized life, of civilized behavior when you're supposed to act civilized. <laughs> That's not simply a matter of uh, whom you vote for. On Being Civilized is the book by Tracy Lee Simmons. Inside the book, you discuss how it's easier to identify civilization once you've seen it than it is right. to simply define it. Why is that the case? Because it's uh, kaleidoscopic, really. There are too many aspects to it. We could talk all day about political civilization or economic civilization or social civilization, but those are only divided for purposes of analysis. Mainly, we're talking about a society that has to, has to be working on and by all of those ideals. And so it's, it's hard to define a civilization, but as, as someone once said of something else, you know it when you see it. Well, we know it when we see it, but there are too many people who are no longer really seeing it or no longer really aspiring to it. When you have a culture of people, for instance, who are concerned more about what they're getting than what they're giving, you're in a, you're in a delicate moment for any civilization when everyone's out for himself. If you, if you take that path too far, uh, you're living in barbarism. In the book, you list a number of signposts of a civilized life. Which do you think are most indicative of a civilized person or a civilized society? Well, that list came from a talk I, I gave, and uh, there's a more than a little bit of jocularity and tongue-in-cheek in some of those ideas. 
But whimsical as it as it may be, there's a there's a serious purpose there. My idea was to say we know we're living in a civilized uh, era when, and I just put down a list. And one of the one of the signposts was the belief that people are improvable but not perfectible. I I think that's a fault line in current thinking. Most people who we would consider uh, associated with the right say would say that people are improvable, uh, but people more on the left want to say that we are perfectible. Living by either ideal is going to have a, uh, is going to have a f- profound effect on, on behavior and the ideals as you, as you practice them. The old classical ideal is that we are not perfectible as human beings. Certainly the Ju- Judeo-Christian idea holds that we are not perfectible, but we are improvable. And to the extent that human beings are improvable, society is improvable too. One of the signs that, that stuck out to me is this one that cursive is taught, expected, and appreciated. This one and a few others, and you allude to this, they, they seem a little trivial, but why this particular one about cursive as a sign of civilization? Well, trivial and hypocritical on my part because my uh, <laughs> penmanship is pretty bad. But my mother's was not. Yeah, I... Uh, Cursive, of course, is is fading out of many schools, and many young people, and I've met a few, cannot read it. Mm-hmm. They're not able to read it. Why? Because it, uh, why is it important? Because it's an art. It's part of what I call the small arts. That for some of us, uh, handwriting is the first time that we learn to extend ourselves verbally to others on paper, which is a way of putting something more or less permanent down that that comes from us. And I think the old cursive idea is why not try to make the self that we extend beautiful as well as clear. And uh, this this method went right up into my own generation. We had to work very hard at penmanship. And, I, and, and frankly, I probably could write better in the third grade than I can write now, <laughs> uh, according to cursive. But it's a, it's a, a period that every child should go through because even those who are not, we would say, are artistic, you know, they don't draw very well, but they can learn to write well, uh, or perhaps more than tolerably well. And that's one of the first arts that they will practice. And it's, it's uh, one of the first places where people can feel proud of something they've produced and can show it to someone, not just a, a stick drawing, but uh, real letters connected in a beautiful way um, that other people can recognize and read. Tracy Lee Simmons is with us. His book, On Being Civilized, A Few Lines Amid the Breakage. Do you think that Western civilization is dying or or just evolving into perhaps something else? Well, it's endangered, I think. Um, and And in the worst way, a civilization can be endangered from within. We can go down the list. Um, academia or higher academia has turned poisonous. There's no news there, but it's only been recognized within the last five or ten years by people who were not aware of, of such trends before. When you are instructing young people badly or you are uh, giving them not so much teaching but propaganda, uh, you're putting your civilization at risk. As, as we've seen within the last uh, several months. College campuses are full of people who not only cannot think, but they're not expected to think. But they're expected to simply shout cliches. And 
that is not the old that is not the idea of of the college mind the college mind is supposed to be independent dedicated certainly but uh, someone uh, who is capable of independent thought and that's that is not what we see and of course in the arts and in advertising you know across the board western civilization is is certainly it certainly has uh, it's back to the barricades at this point because mm. there are people who truly want to destroy it and and say so. Uh, 20 years ago, they weren't saying so. Uh, they simply lived by that intention. Now they're, they're coming out and saying so. So it seems to me that in, in whatever capacity we as individuals have, those of us who love our civilization, love the, in, in America, love the country that came from Western civilization, should stand up for it in the way other people are trying to tear it down. And so this book was an effort to put together a lot of, of essays and, and reviews and so forth uh, that have some sort of bearing on the topic of civilization. And because it was all essentially journalism, it's not academic writing. Mm -hmm. It was written for a wider audience. You allude to the fact that uh, a good number of the chapters in this book are in the form of book reviews, which in a way has become a, a lost art. What do you think makes for a good book review, and, and what role do they play in leading and living a, a civilized life? A smaller and smaller part all the time. <laughs> when I was at National Review, Bill Buckley used to say that book reviews are the easiest form to do badly and the hardest to do well. So it, that might be the beginning of, of some sort of an explanation. I think of book reviews as occasions for thinking and reflection. And it's also a, a kind of, you're a kind of first responder uh, to a book that's come out that uh, the author hopes and the publisher hopes that everyone is, uh, or many, many people are going to see. And the reviewer has this uh, kind of midwife <laughs> function of, of trying to bring that book into the world and give people a reason to read that book or perhaps a, a reason not to read the book. But I, I tend to be one who likes to uh, review positively. <laughs> but of course, when you're assigned books and another period of my life, which I was, I couldn't always be as positive as I was later. <laughs> There's a, a review in On Being Civilized uh, of Light Life, Art, and Civilization, which is a biography of Kenneth Clark and also a discussion of his show, Civilization, from, I believe, the very late 60s. Right. What, what was so important about Clark as a historian and this documentary called Civilization? Oh, he, he was immensely important. Briefly, because he could speak to the common man and woman. That, that's not a phrase I like to use very much because I don't see a lot of common people. But I do see intelligent people who, who are not very well instructed in certain things, whether it be literature or art or history, but they're curious. And that's the important thing, that, that people are curious. As long as one is curious, ignorance is not a problem. You simply fix it. Stupidity is, an, is another matter. <laughs> Kenneth Clark was the most famous art historian of his time, and he started doing television in the 1950s talking about art and showing art, which was pretty difficult if you think about uh, talking about art before color television. But when the BBC finally got color television, I think in the mid-60s, 
uh, then this series became possible. And he was trying to do what a lot of us have tried to do, which is explain civilization by showing what it looks like. And so I think he is an awfully important figure in 20th century history. And I know that the Civilization series, which you can still get on DVD and find online, is able to instruct an entirely new uh, generation of, of learners, uh, adult and otherwise. I've seen high school students respond very well to that series and certainly college students. So do you think something like civilization, I don't know if we need a new one, but 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 could it reclaim a, a civilized appreciation of Western art and, and Western culture? I do. I do. And and you see that that hunger in young people especially. People are hungry to care about things, but first they must know something about them. This is what, why instruction is so important, why reading is so important. And having young people taught by people who care about, about what they're talking about. Being scholars in a particular area is not important, but having a, a solid baseline of knowledge, that's what you need. And that is the way for all of us to exercise our privileges as civilized people. Mm -hmm. The most important thing we can do as civilized people is to pass on the civilization that we have gained for ourselves. Tracy Lee Simmons, his recent book, On Being Civilized, A Few Lines Amid the Breakage. You can find it at Amazon or at memoriapress.com. Tracy, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Delighted. Thank you. Up next, we talk with Dr. Andrew Russell from Hillsdale's biology department about biofilm research. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. The confusion is all around us now. I protest about education today, that uh, the debate, almost the entire debate, it's about what we do to the kids to get them the way we want. They think uh, when they talk about outcomes... Ultimately, what they mean is, is it the kind of person we want to make? And the we want is crucial. So I fear that and think that that way of thinking makes us prey to the worst forms of the artificial intelligence outcomes. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. Find the show on Facebook, search for the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, and get updates each week on new shows. We're joined by Dr. Andrew Russell. He is Associate Professor of Biology at Hillsdale College. Dr. Russell, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Discussing today uh, your work, research into biofilms, which means we need to talk about what that is mm -hmm. first. Biofilms, what are they? How do they form? Yeah, so as a biologist, I'm studying different microorganisms, and essentially you can think of a biofilm as a 
community of bacterial cells growing together. And usually that means sticking to a surface. Uh, so that's the simple definition, but understanding the complexities of how they form is kind of where this area of research is concentrated on. So what's the problem with biofilms? And I guess on the flip side, are, is there are occasions when it's actually beneficial that biofilms are forming somewhere. Yeah, so the, the issues arise depending on the various fields. Uh, the most prominent issues come in the medical field. So biofilms can be formed via a variety of different bacterial cells and including many pathogenic or what we call disease-forming or disease-causing bacteria. And the issues arise then if this certain type of bacteria then is growing on you or inside of you when you get an implant or something that can then result in a disease that's really hard to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And that's really the issue in the medical field is that besides giving them the ability to stick to surfaces on this communal biofilm also is very resistant to treatments like antimicrobial compounds and uh, antibiotics. So that's why the medical field is really interested in figuring out how they form and then trying to prevent them from forming or figuring out ways to break them up or treat them. But today, we're not talking about the medical field. You've done research <laughs> in a few areas, and today we're focused on beer tubing. So <laughs> not real close to medical, but I know the research can apply in various areas. Mm -hmm. So this research on biofilms in various types of beer tubing, what, what inspired you to pursue this question? Well, this was earlier in my career. I had been working at a previous institution in South Dakota called Northern State University. And I was involved in undergraduate research there. And I had a student who approached me as a freshman and wanted to get involved in my lab. And so I was looking at different projects that he could be involved in. And I it stumbled upon some research that some colleagues of mine were working on at Montana State University, which is a, they have an institute for biofilm research. And they had been doing some research on biofilms in breweries and things. So at the time, I was also talking with a student about my newfound interest in brewing, like home brewing, mm -hmm. and he was, you know, interested in that. And so I decided to pitch this idea to him, like, hey, I, you know, there's not a lot of research done on biofilms in the brewing industry, so why don't we try to figure out a project that you can do? And he he was definitely interested, and so we started looking into various issues and discovered that there were um, a lot of biofilms that grow just simply in the draft lines from a keg to a dispense system in, you know, a bar or restaurant. And, you know, the, the ways of treating this issue are pretty rudimentary still. Mm -hmm. And there had been some companies that had come up with different types of tubing that promised the ability to resist biofilm formation, but nobody had actually done a peer-reviewed study on that. So that was what kind of instigated our initial interest in the topic and why we developed a project for it. Talking with Dr. Andrew Russell from the biology department here at Hillsdale. So what exactly did you test and what did you find out? Yeah, so we come to find out that there's several different types of tubing that a bar or a restaurant can use in dispensary systems. There's the old classic nylon, or um, there's polypropylene tubing. Mm -hmm. There's um, also vinyl tubing, which is your 
most common form. And then there's some others that are blends and proprietary mixtures from various companies. So we decided to compare these tubings and chose three different types. And so we needed to figure out a way to like mimic a bar scenario. Mm-hmm. Did um, this involve the actual drinking of the beer? That's the question people <laughs> well, want to know. Well, yeah, t- unfortunately, no. Uh, <laughs> being uh, that my student was a minor, we had to keep it on the on the down low as far as consuming things. Plus, we actually probably wouldn't have wanted to with the way we were tainting the system in our our simulated bar scenario. So we kind of devised, with the help of a local brewery called the Dakota Territory Brewing Company, there in Aberdeen, South Dakota. They provided for us um, beer and kegs, and and we, you know, they gave us one of their famous amber ales to test this on. And they also gave us uh, essentially a, a large kegerator that they would use to take to venues and uh, told us how to set up the system. So essentially we hooked up these three different tubing types all to the same keg of beer, and then we tainted the system by creating a microbial cocktail, as I like to call it. So we we looked through the literature, we found out what are the most common species of bacteria that cause contamination in breweries. So we chose two of those, and then we also chose a species of yeast that's used for brewing. Because a lot of these biofilms that you find in the wild, so to speak, are what we call multi-species biofilms. Mm -hmm. It's not just one type of bacterial species that's growing. It's a collection of different types that all collaborate together to stick. So we chose three of them and I mixed them up, cultured them together, and then just saturated this system with it to allow time for these bacterial cells and yeast cells to stick to the tubing. Then we rinsed it out with water and everything. And then we added the beer and then we just randomly would dispense a certain amount of beer through the system. And we did this for about three months without doing anything to it. We changed the tanks for it, um, and but that's about it. We wouldn't clean it or anything. And then after the period of three months, then we just tested to see which of these three tubings had biofilm forming in them and did any of them resist biofilm formation. And what we found was that just as the manufacturer promised, there was this one type of tubing that really was resistant against biofilm formation. So it comes to find out that it has a special nylon barrier in it. And this essentially seems to be preventing biofilm formation by creating an oxygen barrier Mm -hmm. because these microbes like most living organisms need oxygen to survive. So the more you can prevent oxygen from leaking into those tubes, the better you can prevent the formation of biofilms. So is that nylon tubing, nylon barrier tubing in wide use at this point? And what does it mean? What should it mean perhaps for big brewers and for small brewers alike? Yeah, at the time that we did the study, it wasn't very widely widely adopted. It was kind of a new proprietary form of tubing. Still, if you go to most restaurants, bars, they still use classic vinyl tubing, which is fine. But believe it or not, it actually has a lot of oxygen that penetrates it when it's just sitting there. We tend to think of these plastic tubings as being in, you know, impenetrable by oxygen and other gases, but they're not. They have gaps in them and oxygen can get in. So 
this new type of tubing wasn't in wide circulation. I'm not exactly sure how much it's been adopted now. Mm -hmm. My guess is it's slowly being adopted as people realize the benefits of it. Because beyond just keeping things clean, uh, they actually allow people to not have to clean stuff as often. Because if you use old vinyl tubing, you're supposed to clean it essentially, I think, once a week. Uh, really thoroughly, which is very time-consuming. Dr. Andrew Russell, final question. Applications for this type of research, I imagine, you know, for, for Pop and Pepsi and Coke, yeah. they can use this information. But we kind of started by talking about medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, can this sort of research be transferred into that world as well? Yeah, I mean, you think of any time that you're moving one fluid from one space to another, you're going to be using tubing. So this type of nylon barrier tubing can actually be very beneficial for that. So that's not just breweries or bars or dispensaries, but it's also, yeah, you go to the local Dairy Queen or whatever, and they have a pop machine there. Biofilms can grow in the tubing of those uh, soda lines, though, even the water lines in your, in your own ho home can actually um, have biofilms growing on them. So incorporating this type of nylon barrier tubing is good for that reason. But we can even go beyond that because anytime you can make a surface that you want to keep clean mm -hmm. and that surface can be made out of some sort of plastic material, this is a great option for that. Or if you think of various types of consumer goods that you have in plastic containers, if you want to increase the shelf life and you can, you know, spend a couple of extra cents on that product's packaging then it's going to increase the, the uh, life of that product quite a bit. Dr. Andrew Russell, Associate Professor of Biology here at Hillsdale College. Dr. Russell, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thanks so much. That will wrap up this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to Dr. Khalil Habib from Hillsdale's Politics Department, Tracy Lee Simmons, his new book on being civilized, and Andrew Russell from Hillsdale's Biology Department. The Radio Free Hillsdale Hour is recorded at the studios of WRFH, the student-run radio station at Hillsdale College. Remember, you can hear new episodes every week on this station. You also can find extended versions of some of our interviews or listen anytime to the podcast. Find it at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. The assistant producer of the program is Sam Lair. Until next week, I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.